0: You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. The Limits of Ethical Consumerism. What makes Walmart such a good example of scalability is not just its size but the principles underlying its actions, such as mainstreaming sustainability, measuring total impacts, empowering customers, working with suppliers, and setting audacious goals. Indeed, it is now part of an industry that seems intent on transforming itself, with many of the largest players, like Tesco and Marks & Spencer, trying to out-compete one another on the sustainability and responsibility stakes. This has come as a bit of a surprise to many, including so-called CSR experts. As the well-respected CSR commentator Mallon Baker observed, British retailer Marks & Spencer used to be best known as a pillar of the establishment. No fiery, wild-eyed radical, it would do a select number of good things for the community, and it would steadfastly refuse to beat its own drum about it. All that has changed, and the measure of just how much – could be seen with the retailer's recent pronouncement that it is aiming to become the world's most sustainable retailer by 2015. At the heart of this ambition is what it calls Plan A, because there is no Plan B, which sets out 100 sustainability targets and which they seem well on their way to achieving. These are indeed encouraging signs for the future However, in order that we don't repeat past mistakes, it is worth looking back and learning a key lesson of retail history, namely that the so-called ethical consumer may unwittingly be hindering progress. That may seem like a crazy thing to say, but here is why I say it. Simply put, by creating a premium-priced niche market for ethical consumption, whether it be organic, fair trade or eco-friendly – companies have been able to present a responsible front to the world while leaving the vast majority of their products, which are by implication less than ethical, unquestioned and unchanged. At the same time, a small group of usually well-off Western consumers have been able to ease their conscience by feeling that they are making a positive difference. Now let me be clear, I am not against organic or fair trade, or eco-friendly products per se. That would be insane. Clearly, there are groups of producers, especially poor farmers in the third world, that have benefited enormously from these initiatives. What I am against is the voluntary nature and premium pricing of sustainable and responsible products. The combination of these two factors has ensured that, with one or two exceptions, these products have never gone to scale compared with the collective and ongoing impacts of mainstream shopping habits, ethical consumption, laudable as it is, has remained marginal at best and totally insignificant at worst. Let's look at some of the facts. The UK Soil Association launched the world's first organic standard in 1967 and Germany launched its Blue Angel eco-label in 1978. The first fair trade coffee – introduced by the Max Havilar Foundation, was in 1988, and the Rainforest Alliance launched its Smart Wood certification in 1989. Today we even have oddities like carbon-neutral climate change chocolate, launched by Bloomsbury & Company. So we have had more than 40 years of ethical consumption, and where has that left us? Well, certainly it is a growing trend. In the UK where the proportion of ethical consumers is among the highest in the world, a survey of 4,000 consumers by PricewaterhouseCoopers found that shoppers buying fair trade products rose from 20% in 2005 to 50% in 2008, and organic food purchasing increased from 22% to 43% over the same period. However, this £300 billion sector accounted for just 4% of the UK retail market in 2008, and only 60% of basic grocery products had sustainable alternatives, falling to 40% for some subcategories, such as clothing and non-food items. According to the PWC survey, the high prices associated with fair trade and organic products remained the inhibitor to further growth. On average, the price premium for environmentally and ethically friendly products, taken across 75 items at the UK's top six grocers, was 45%. Almost 50% of those shoppers surveyed said they were unwilling or unable to pay this premium, claiming that on average they were not willing to pay a premium in excess of 20% for greener alternatives. How then do we explain polls like the one done in 2009 by the Fair Trade Labelling Organisation among 14,500 people across 15 countries, which found that more than half said they were active ethical consumers? Well, as all professional market researchers will tell you, these figures are horribly skewed due to what is called the socially acceptable response bias. You are basically asking people if they are ethical, or if they care about poor farmers in the third world, or if they are okay with trashing the planet. Would you answer yes? The UK's Sustainable Consumption Roundtable confesses that they know that there is a considerable gap, the so-called value-action gap, between people's attitudes, which are often pro-environmental, and their everyday behaviours. Fair trade coffee for you, sir. We know the value-action gap is explained partly by price and availability of alternatives, but there is something else going on as well. Simply put, context matters. To illustrate this, Timothy Deviney, author of The Myth of the Ethical Consumer, reports on a very interesting experiment he conducted while researching his book, The experiment took place at a coffee shop in central Sydney in Australia over a period of several weeks. This coffee shop displayed a large and prominent sign indicating the products available, their price and active specials. To this was added, quite obtrusively, another special indicating we have fair trade coffee, no extra charge, just ask. Here's what he found. Unprompted with only the sign to notify them of the availability of the ethical alternative, less than 1% of customers bothered to ask for fair trade coffee, even though it was the same price as normal coffee. However, when the barista prompted customers with a reminder that the ethical alternative was available, the number of customers opting for the fair trade option rose to 30%. They then went a step further and took the customer's privacy away. Each time the barista prompted a customer with the fair trade option, they ensured there was someone standing next to that person at the counter. In this situation, the number of ethical consumers rose to 70%. Throughout the experiment, Davini's research team gave different colored cups to customers who indicated that they wanted the fair trade product – They then questioned those remaining in the coffee shop about the meaning of fair trade and what they thought they were doing by purchasing or not purchasing fair trade coffee. On the whole, they received informed and insightful answers. Customers talked about fair trade. They talked about the conditions of Guatemalan farmers. They could cite many reasons why they had opted for fair trade coffee. But, and it's a very big but, None of this meant anything. This is what Devini concluded. When a customer chose the fair trade alternative, his or her decision was based entirely on the context we had created. It had nothing to do with that person's values or preferences. This is a hugely important lesson. If we want to achieve scalability of sustainable and responsible products and services, we cannot leave it to the passive choices of consumers. Context is critical, and a little bit of peer pressure goes a long way. Choice editing for good. But do we really want to resort to public embarrassment to achieve scalability? The UK's Sustainable Consumption Roundtable, which was jointly hosted by the National Consumer Council and the Sustainable Development Commission, did some research on this question and concluded that the focus needs to be on creating a supportive framework for collective progress rather than exhorting individuals to go against the grain. This is the approach that we heard time and again in our engagement with consumers and business, encapsulated in the notion of, I will if you will. It is possible to make sustainable habits and choices easier to take up, by drawing on insights about consumer behaviour and using people's preferences for purchasing shortcuts and what we call the trend towards choice editing. The idea of choice editing is likely to get free market fundamentalists all in a huff, but the fact is that manufacturers and retailers choice edit all the time on quality, price, aesthetics and brand offering. The only difference is that now we are asking them to add sustainability and responsibility to their list of criteria. Walmart certainly wasn't the first to wake up to this possibility. In 1997, the UK retail chain Iceland, now the big food group, announced that it would ban all ingredients derived from genetically modified crops, from its own label products. Then-chairman and chief executive Malcolm Walker said... The proposal by other manufacturers and retailers to only label products which contain protein from GM, soya or maize would result in probably less than 5% of processed foods being labelled, whereas if all GM derivatives are included, as much as 60% of processed foods could be labelled accordingly. Iceland's gamble paid off, and the response of customers was overwhelmingly supportive. As a result, Iceland continued its trailblazing, race to the top, by banning all artificial colours and flavours from its products and investing heavily in organic food. In fact, in June 2000, Iceland bought up 40% of the world's organic vegetable crop to become an organic-only supermarket. And herein lies the cautionary tale, because this time, customers did not back the store's choice to stock only the more expensive organic products. Sales slumped and the company went into a financial crisis that resulted in Walker leaving under a cloud. Subsequently, Iceland brought back non-organic products and its sales and profitability were restored. There are two lessons from this case. First, and most obviously, Iceland went too far ahead of its customers. Perhaps their shoppers were not conscious or committed enough. Perhaps the ethical case had not been made strongly enough by the company and by the UK's media. Or at least not in the same way that the anti-GMO case had been made. But there is another way to read this. Perhaps it was not the moral ineptitude of customers, but rather the premium price tag that put the nail in the coffin of Iceland's pioneering pro-organics move. Perhaps you have to be the size of Walmart to achieve sufficient economies of scale to justify everyday low prices for sustainable and responsible products. And since there is only one Walmart, how can the rest of the world's companies achieve scalability of ethical consumerism without hitting the price premium wall.